Well, good evening. I do love the fact that uh, congregations do these Wednesday night series. It's good to, and, and I was with y'all last year, so it's good to be back with you again. And it's good to go around and get to know brothers and sisters in Christ all over the place. But you never know what you're going to get into when you when you go to a different congregation, visit somewhere. I heard a story about a, a preacher that he was visiting a new congregation. He wasn't quite sure about them. He wanted to check them out first. So he, he walked in the foyer, and the first people that he saw were this group of kids, and so he thought, I'm going to ask these kids some, some questions and kind of figure out how much Bible they know, kind of figure out this congregation. So he, he asked the kids, he said, guys, listen, let me, let me ask you something. Uh, who, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? And they didn't say anything. And he thought, surely, surely they know, and they're just being shy. He said, come on, guys, who knocked down the walls of Jericho? One of the little boys said, listen, mister, I don't know who you are, but I didn't knock them down. <laughs> And so he thought, you know, well, that tells me a thing or two. So he went up to some of the deacons and he said, now, listen, guys, I'm a little bit concerned because I went up to your kids and I was asking them these questions and here's what they said. And the deacons didn't say anything. And he said, guys, doesn't that concern you? He said, listen, one of the deacons said, listen, I've known these kids all their life and they said they didn't knock them down. They didn't knock them down. So <laughs> I, I like the series title about uh, what does God say about various things and that's that's what we need to know isn't it what what does God say about these things uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit tonight about what does God say about idols and idolatry and uh, that versus the truth and what is an idol and what does it mean to be idolatrous I think it'd be really easy for us on the one hand to say I don't have a problem with that you know I, I don't worship idols I've never carved anything out of wood or stone and I've never bowed down to a statue before and and that certainly is idolatry and that's usually the the form that it takes although that is prevalent even in in our world now I don't know what it's like down here in Cedar Hill but in where I live in McKinney uh, just down the street there's a Hindu temple uh, just a few blocks from my house and so my boys and I have got a nine-year-old and a, and a seven-year-old and we've had lots of conversations about what it is that they believe and how those are our neighbors and we need to love them but if we have the opportunity we need to tell them about Jesus and so uh, even that form of idolatry is prevalent uh, even in this part of the world now. But as I got older and, you know, thought more about idolatry and, you know, got in Bible classes and teachers tried to help us to understand that even if you don't bow down to a statue, you could still struggle with having an idol of sorts. And they would explain it usually like an idol is anything that's more important to you than God, right? I think most of us would probably agree with that, that an idol can be anything if you put it above God, if you make it more important to you than God, if you love it more than you love God. But, I mean, let's be honest. It, by that definition, we would all say, well, then I, I, I put nothing above God. God is most important in my life. I've never put anything above God. God is number one. I mean, it's really easy to kind of fool ourselves, isn't it? Because we all tell ourselves that God is most important and nothing else comes above God. Um, so I, I think it's important that we, we have a better definition that kind of helps us to, uh, to work through it. At a very basic level, an idol is, or idolatry is, turning a created thing into an object of worship. Let's kind of think through that for just a second. Turning a created thing into an object of worship. And all 
created things are good things, right? I mean, think back to the idols that they worshipped in biblical times or idols that they worshipped in ancient times or idols that people worship all over the world today. Everything that people worship, whether it's an idea like fertility or an idea like civilization or whatever it is, or whether it's a, a cow or a horse or a chicken or a person or an eagle or whatever it is, it's a good thing. God created it. It's a good thing. But, but then when you take that and you turn it into an object of worship, what does that mean? What does it mean to worship something? And the root of the word worship in English is worth. It's ascribing to something ultimate worth. So I like this definition. A guy named Tim Keller said this, that idolatry is turning a good thing, and that's what all created things are, right? They're good. All created things are good. God said they were good. When he made them, he said it's good. All of it's good. And it's taking that good thing and turning it into an ultimate thing. Turning it into something that you say, this is what life is all about. This makes life worth living. This is, this is kind of the center of my world. And it's very easy, isn't it, if we're real honest, to take good things in our life that are important to us and that we love and, and that we enjoy and make them ultimate things and say, I couldn't live without that. I mean, I've heard people say that about coffee and Dr. Pepper, right? Maybe some of us say that. You know, I mean, say, I, I, can't, I couldn't live without that. And we might be exaggerating when it comes to Dr. Pepper, but, but there are things in our life that become so vitally important to us that we cannot even imagine existence without that. And we lift it to a level where it is essentially a deity in our mind. So we might say this, that, that idolatry is, is deifying anything in our hearts. It's making something in addition to God or other than God ultimate in our heart. So that's the question is, is God alone ultimate in our heart? Is he the only one about whom we say, I cannot live without? He makes my life worth living. Or is there, are there other things that we exalt? And that's what it is, isn't it? We are exalting other things to the level of deity by saying this isn't just good, it's ultimate. This makes life worth living. And think about our culture, not just your neighbor, but yourself and other people in our world. Think about the things that we have a tendency to do that with. To take and say, this isn't just good, it's ultimate. It makes life worth living. And why, why is it that we do that? Why do we take something and we, we make it ultimate? It's usually because we, we want something, right? A longing that we have. And we think, if I had this, or I need to keep this so that it satisfies my longing, because I'm hungry for something, I'm thirsty for something, I want something, and I think if I just have this thing, that it'll satisfy that longing. We're all grown-ups in here, right? So we can, we can be real honest. I mean, sexuality becomes that way for some people, doesn't it? For a lot of people. And they think, if I just have that, that special relationship, then it'll satisfy that deepest longing in my heart. And a lot of times, it's not quite what they thought it was going to be, right? 
And it doesn't quite satisfy like they thought it would satisfy. And they think, well, maybe it was just this person. Maybe if I found another person. Whatever it is that we, we do that with, we think this is an ultimate thing. And we do it in part because we think it will satisfy us. Fill that void in our heart and our mind. Or sometimes we deify things We take created good, created things, and we make them ultimate things, not just because we're trying to satisfy a longing, but because we're trying to be saved from a fear. We're afraid of something. And we think, this is so terrifying, and this is so horrible, and this is so bad, and I don't ever want this to happen to me, that I have to have this thing in place to protect me and save me from my deepest fears. And think about all of the things that humanity has done. All of the things that we've deified to either satisfy our deepest longings or save us from our deepest fears. And really, when you think about idols in ancient times, that's really what they're doing, isn't it? I mean, yeah, they were bowing down to an eagle or a cow or whatever, but It was more about the idea behind that idol. They were just giving personalities and names to ideas. Ideas like fertility. Whether that's the fertility of of people or the fertility of a field. And they said, "Our, our growth as a people or our food source as a people, our crops growing. Our crops growing is so important. It's ultimate. We have to have food. And in order to have food, we've got to make the fertility god or goddess happy because it's ultimate. Because if we don't have food, what will happen? We'll what? Starve, right? We'll die. We, I'm terrified of dying. I'm ty- terrified of starving. It happens. There's famines. And so in order to keep from dying, we've got to keep fertility happy. Or if, if a people's nation or their city becomes so ultimate to them, They end up deifying their very nation or deifying their very city and worshiping in a personified way their city. Or how about the the gods of war or the god of war? War is so ultimate, we have to win on the battlefield and so we'll sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice and do whatever we need to do to be victorious on the battlefield. Whether it's fertility or sexuality or beauty or war or nations or whatever it is, the God of the sea or the God of the air or the God of the sun or whatever it is, it's taking that idea that behind it might be a good thing. I mean, it's good to have food, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing wrong with food and fertility is good, the crops and people and it's good. God made it and it's good. But to take those things and exalt them, to say this is ultimate, and I'm willing to sacrifice whatever in order to have this. Even the Israelites got to the point where they sacrificed even their own children. You know the story of Molech? They would have statues of this God with arms outstretched and in his belly of the statue was a hollow place where they would kindle a fire. And the arms were kind of at an angle and they would lay the infant in the hands and it would roll down into the fire belly. Why? Why? Why would somebody sacrifice their own baby, their own children? Don't they have a heart? Why why would a mother or a father, why would a community allow these gods to become so ultimate that they would sacrifice their children? 
because they became ultimate. Because they said, whatever it is that I think that I'm going to gain, it's bigger and more important than whatever it is that I'm going to lose. And think about how we do that in our culture. I mean, we probably, thankfully, hopefully, aren't literally sacrificing our children. But how many moms and dads, how many of people are sacrificing their children at the altar of career? Or at the altar of sports? You know, I read in the bio that our family likes sports, and we do. My, my son loves baseball. One of the things, one of my jobs as a dad is to kind of temper that back a little bit and say, hey, baseball's fun, and if it's not fun, you're not playing it right. It's a game. It's supposed to be a game, and if you take it so seriously it's not fun anymore, then it's become something else. One of the things, when I grew up, my dad hated sports, and he hated sports for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons he did, and one of the things he pointed out to me when I was a kid was how some dads treated their families when they watched a game on television. And isn't that amazing that a game, I'm always reminding my family that the only difference between professional baseball and checkers is perspective, right? I mean, because they're both just games, but nobody gets all fired up about a game of checkers because in our culture, we've blown some things out of proportion, haven't we? And if we're going to yell and scream and lose our temper with our family because our sports team isn't doing well, then something ought to trigger on our mind and say, wow, I've really lost perspective. I've really exalted and elevated this thing, whatever it is. It could be politics. Can we make idols out of our politics? Or our sports, or sexuality, or careers, or relationships. Whatever it is, we exalt it to a level where we say, I'm willing to sacrifice just about anything and everything in order to have that because I think that that will save me from my deepest fear or satisfy my deepest longing. And that's always been the heart behind idolatry. And so what we have to ask is, is God alone? ultimate in our hearts. You know, I mean, I could go on and on about my temptation, what I think most people's temptation, even even in our worship of God. Sometimes we worship God because we see God as a means to an end, right? If I do what I'm supposed to do, then I'll be healthy and, and I'll have money and I'll be taken care of. And it's not God that we're pursuing, It's the stuff that we're pursuing. And God is just a means to an end. And and, and it's even possible to turn God and think of God like an idol. Because that's what it was. When they worshipped the God of war, it wasn't that they loved that God and they wanted a deep, meaningful relationship with him. It was that they, they were using him as a means to an end on the battlefield. When they worshiped Poseidon, the god of the, of the waters and the oceans and the seas, it wasn't that they loved Poseidon. I mean, they hated him and feared him. They were using him as a means to an end. We've got to even ask ourselves, do I do that with God? Am I using God as a means to an end so that I get what I want? Or is it God himself that I'm pursuing? Do I love God so very much that I want him and nothing else? And these are deep questions that I have to wrestle with and you have to wrestle with. But as we do, let's look at Romans chapter 1 because I think 
I think this will help us to answer this question and think through this question on what is idolatry and what's the heart behind it? And, and most importantly, how do we deal with it? How do we deal with it? If I recognize that I'm blowing some things out of proportion and some things have become ultimate things in my heart and I've deified some idea or some created thing, how do I deal with that? Uh, I think we can answer that here in just a second. So look at Romans 1 and verse 18. Now, Paul is, I think, ultimately writing this letter to help Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles get on the same page. Romans chapter 12. There's kind of where the application of Romans begins. He says, okay, since we went through all of that stuff, therefore, here's how, here's how you live your life. But in order to build up to that, that application, in order to say, present yourself to God as a living sacrifice and treat each other and your neighbors this certain way, he begins by talking about Gentiles and saying, this is why the Gentile world is the way the Gentile world is, and this is why they've become as debased and wicked as they are. But, but then he doesn't just leave it at that. He turns to the Jews and he says, okay, but, but you guys think that we, because he's a Jew, you know, pat himself on the back, and you, you think you're great because you've got the law, but in fact, that makes you even more guilty because you've got the law and you didn't obey the law. So you're all guilty before God and all need a Savior, both Jew and Gentile. Both need a Savior. So he says this in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So again, to show that, that, that people are, are guilty and that God is just in his indignation and wrath and that God is just to say you're wrong and you're condemned and then God is just for saying that I'm going to send you a savior. We've got to establish why. Why is the world guilty before God? How, how could they even know about God? How could they know to worship God? And Paul says it should be evident to them. It's always been evident to them. Look at why that is. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes, namely, and he names two things, his eternal power, one, and divine nature, two, so his power and nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. And that's kind of an awesome thought, isn't it? We could kind of sit right there all night, that the created things, the good things in the world reveal what? The power and the nature of God, right? The power and the nature of God are revealed in created things. Everybody, to some extent in the whole world, everybody, whether they're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or an agnostic, everybody has seen and experienced some of God's power and nature and has seen it and experienced it in their life as they interact and look at created things. We all look at a sunset we say, that is, what? What's the sunset? Ugly? Horrible? Horrendous? No. It's beautiful. It's breathtaking, right? I mean, that's why people out in West Texas, I lived in Midland for a while, in Abilene, and, and I always say, if there wasn't oil under the ground in Midland, I don't think anybody would live out there. But people that live out there, besides the oil, they say that the sunsets are beautiful. In fact, 
Then I moved to Arkansas, and there's all these trees, and people would come visit. And I'd say, aren't these trees amazing? And they'd say, yeah, but they block the view of the sunset. You know, so we've all looked at things, whether it's Grand Canyon or the trees or waterfalls or mountains or oceans, and we say, wow, that's amazing. I mean, who, who could look at a, a newborn baby and not think how precious, how wonderful, who could look at self-sacrifice and courage and, and, and nobility and, and not be in awe of that? And who could look at the world and not say, there are some things that are good and beautiful and right and awesome, and there are other things that are broken and awful and heartbreaking. And so even through the created world, we should be able to see something of God's divine nature and his power revealed to us, revealed to mankind through the created things. So verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, now here's the problem. Here's, here's the basis for idolatry. Here's the basis for sin. Here's the basis for your problems and mine. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see that? Two things. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They could, they could have looked at all of this stuff and said, there, there, must be, there must be a good creator, right? There must be someone behind this that, that gave us good and bad and, and, and gave us these beautiful things and that helps us to understand that this is good and this is bad and this is wonderful and this is awful. Someone... Someone is behind this. But although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is profound stuff, isn't it? Paul is saying that the root of the Gentile world's problems... The root of their problem is a failure to honor and give thanks to the Creator God. The root of their problem is failure to give honor to Him and give thanks to Him. So their, their problem, the root of their problem is a failure to worship. Because when we fail to worship, what is it that He says? It says that their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts became darkened. It distorts reality when you fail to honor and give thanks to the Creator for the created stuff. When you, when you fail to, to appreciate what you have, then it distorts reality. I was trying to think, what would be a good metaphor? I don't know if this works or not, but I mean, think about it. Think about like a photograph. Okay, I mean, think about a, I mean, a photograph. I mean, that's a, that's a pretty awesome thing, isn't it? I mean, it's neat that we live in a world, not just where we have photographs, but we can use our phones and we have photographs, you know, millions of photographs all the time. So we can take a picture of just about anything. But we know, don't we, that it, that just points to the reality, doesn't it? I mean, you can have a picture of your grandkids or your kids or, or, or your spouse or somebody that you love or care about, but you you know that's not them. It's just a picture of them. I mean, you know the difference, right? And if somebody doesn't know the difference, and they say, hey, I want to introduce you to my, my friend here, and they give you a picture of somebody, 
you think, I mean, you, you do realize that's not an actual person, right? That's just a picture of a person. Say, no, no, it's, this is a real person. What are you saying? It's not a real person. This is a real person. I mean, I'm married to this person or whatever. And it's just a, it's just a photograph. I mean, all of the things in the whole world, from the stars in the sky to the waterfalls and the mountains and the oceans, all of it was, it's just a reflection of God's glory and God's beauty. It's all pointing to him. He's the reality to which everything else points. But when you take those things, those good things, and exalt them, then your reality becomes distorted, doesn't it? You've taken those good things and you've replaced God with the stuff that he made. And your hearts and your minds get get all twisted up. And this is true of every single one of us to some degree or another, isn't it? That we've taken something that's supposed to be good. We're supposed to play a game and be like, wow, that was a fun game. I I lost. That's okay. It was was fun. I got some exercise. It was wonderful. You know, thanks for playing with me. I appreciate it. But we don't do that. We we fight over a game and yell and scream. I've got a nine-year-old son and you should hear some of the coaches and the umpires and the parents yelling at each other about a, a little league baseball game. And it's like, your reality is distorted. If you really think this is that important, your reality is distorted. And think about all the things that we do that with. All the things that we blow out of proportion. And it really is. It's like we're taking a photograph of something and making it the actual thing. That photograph is just supposed to point to the reality. It's not supposed to be the reality itself. And our reality is twisted and distorted. And and so Paul is saying, "This this is what's happened with humanity. This is why they're in the shape that they're in. It's not just because they do bad things. Okay? I mean, can't, can't we, can we see that? You look at your neighbor and you think, why? Why do you do that? Why, uh, why do you make those decisions that you make? Because they don't think the way you think or see the way that you see. And you can sympathize with them to some degree, can't you? Because we've all distorted our own reality by worshiping the creator, the, cre- the created rather than the creator. Look at verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged. See, there's a trade that's happening. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You see the, you see the kind of the word play there? There's an exchange. You see, They've, they've traded. They've, they've made a, an exchange. They exchanged the immortal for the what? Mortal. <laughs> Is that a good swap? No, I mean, that's a horrible trade. What are, you, what are you doing? You're exchanging the glory of the immortal God with mortal men and animals. You're taking these mortal things that wear out and get old and die and, you know, are broken and, you know, have all these problems, and you're putting them in the place of the, the immortal God. You're, tra- you're trading his glory and, and honoring him and seeing him and ordering your whole life with that as your perspective. And, and you're, you're, you're making a horrible trade here. And, and when you take these mortal things and you make that your baseline, and you make that what's most important in your life, then everything else in your life is going to be skewed, isn't it? Can we see how that happens? That as good as sexuality is, I mean, sexuality is good, right? God created it, it's good. 
But our culture, we've taken sexuality and we have exalted it to a place of deity where people order their, their entire existence and their identity around their sexual desires. And it distorts their reality, doesn't it? It distorts our reality. When we take these good things, and we all have, and exalt them to ultimate things in our life. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. See, lust, it's that, that desire to be satisfied in some way that we're, we're hungering for something, we're thirsting for something, we want something. And, and there's this, this hunger and a desire for it. It's, it's, like, it's like you're in the desert and, and you're thirsty for water, but instead of finding water to drink, you, you start eating the sand instead. And you're like, well, I don't have water, but I have sand, and so I'm just going to eat that instead. Hopefully, if I eat enough sand, then I'll be satisfied. How's that working out for you, right? I, that, that doesn't work, does it? But, but that's exactly what mankind has tried to do. We've exalted various things, and we've gone after those things as if they were gods themselves. And so God, at some point, turned us over to the lusts of our hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, sin Sinful lifestyles and sinful cultures are the result, not just of disobedience. It is disobedience, absolutely. But it's the result of idolatry. It's because we have failed to honor and give thanks to God. When you honor and give thanks to God and you see Him for who He is and then you build your life around that, then everything else has its proper place. When you drink water because you're thirsty and you eat food because you're hungry, everything else is a little bit better. But if you eat sand because you're hungry and thirsty, everything else is worse. And we're taking things and putting them in the place where only God is supposed to be and everything else is distorted and everything else is broken as a result of our failure to honor Him and give thanks to Him. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. It, it's, not, it's, not just, it's not just that it's disobedient. It's that it, it's the result of thinking about the world wrong. It's the result of worshiping the wrong thing. And it's wrong of us to, to not appreciate and sympathize with the fact that we've all, we've all gone down this road in one way or the other. This, the sexuality part of it, is one example of how human beings mess up their lives because they fail to give honor and thanks to God. And, and, and we have all experienced that brokenness, mixed-upness in one way or the other, haven't we? 
And, and as we look at our world, and as they looked at their world, you think our world, you people, I mean, we, we look at our world and we say, wow, the culture is just going downhill, and, you know, America this and America that. I mean, you should have lived in first century Rome or first century Ephesus. I mean, you think sexuality and sexual, you know, misconduct is bad now? I mean, they made a lifestyle of it. Because they, they literally worship sexuality. They, they literally would go to an idol's temple and engage in all kinds of sexuality as an act of worship. And we're following in the same footsteps, aren't we? It's exactly what our culture is doing as well. We're just a little bit behind them. When we, when we look at these things and we say, this thing is an ultimate thing, and if I just have this, then my life will make sense and my life will work. No. You worship anyone or anything other than God and your life, your very reality, how you see and perceive and think about the world will be distorted. And that's true of every single one of us. And, and again, I hope that we can sympathize with our neighbors and our friends and realize that their eyes and their hearts are darkened because they don't see God the way that they should. And hopefully we can recognize that in our own life when we are elevating something to the place where only God should dwell. Look at verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God. See, that's the root of it all. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, their gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. See, all of it, all of it goes back to idolatry. All of it goes back to a failure to honor God, a failure to give thanks to God, a failure to acknowledge God. And when a people or when an individual fails to honor God and give thanks to God and acknowledge God and worship God, and instead worship the created thing, the creature, rather than the creator, when we exchange the glory of the immortal God for the glory of mortal man and creatures, then this is who we become. Evil and vile people. And to some degree, surely we can all admit and confess, I've seen that in me. And I know it's possible for me to go down that exact same road. And again, I know it's a silly example, but the baseball game and how we talk to each other. I mean, there's some places that if, if your soccer team loses the, the soccer match or wins the soccer match, I mean, you better watch out because there'll be a whole crowd of people that'll trample you to death. And there's been professional baseball games where you're walking out of the stadium with the wrong hat on and somebody beats you up or kills you over a ball game. Something is dreadfully wrong. Something is dreadfully wrong when there's murder and hate and bitterness and screaming and yelling over something so trivial. But that's the, that's the whole thing. We don't think that it's trivial, do we? Whether it's politics or sexuality or sporting events or whatever it is, we don't think it's trivial. We have elevated it and exalted it because God's not in that place. And we've exalted those things to a place of deity 
in our hearts. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. But then the rest of the book of Romans, and unfortunately we don't have time to read the rest of the book of Romans, but the rest of the book of Romans centers on the cross, doesn't it? Because the cross is the cure for idolatry. The cross is the cure for idolatry. Jesus is the cure for idolatry. We develop idols when we magnify things and minimize God. That's what happens, right? I mean, it just happens. If you, if you magnify a thing, even if it's Dr. Pepper, I'm sorry, but if you magnify a thing where it becomes everything to you and your life revolves around that thing, whether it's a job or a relationship or whatever, no matter how good it is, things are good. God made them. But when you magnify that thing, you're minimizing God. Isn't it amazing how especially as a teenager, I could, I could come to worship and we'd sing songs, you know, and I would go through the motions, but I wasn't really acknowledging and glorifying and magnifying my God. But I'd go to a sporting event and I'd magnify that. Or I'd see a pretty girl and I'd magnify that. I would think about this thing or that thing or the other thing, and I would magnify those things with this is worthy of praise. Isn't that? We would say things like, awesome. It's awesome. Thankfully, I had a mom that used to remind me, no, that's not awesome. God is awesome. See, this is what happens. We magnify things. We minimize God. But the cross, the cross brings everything into focus. The cross puts everything into perspective. Because our, our deepest fear, what's our deepest fear? Death, isn't it? And Jesus says, if you believe in me, though you die, yet shall you live. Jesus promises through his death and burial and resurrection to bring us back to life and save us from our deepest fear. I mean, even if our deepest fear is hopelessness and meaninglessness and lack of purpose, he gives us all of those things, doesn't he? And when we order our life around Jesus, he, he, he saves us from every fear that we might have so that we can be the kind of people that say, I don't fear those who could kill the body. I mean, if somebody's going to kill me for following Jesus, that's fine because I only fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. I, I only fear God. And because I fear him and I'm in awe of him, then nothing else really scares me. I mean, that's powerful, isn't it? Because then you say, I don't, I don't need an idol. I don't need to worship the, the political elephant or the political donkey. I don't need to worship sports and I don't need to worship relationships because I'm not, I'm not afraid. And I can appreciate things for what they are and appreciate the value that they bring and appreciate their goodness and appreciate whatever it is, whatever role God designed for them to play. But I don't have to elevate them and magnify them because Jesus is magnified. And now I don't have to be afraid. And now I can appreciate what the gospel says. It says, don't fear. I'm with you. We don't have to be afraid. And then our deepest longings. Does Jesus satisfy our deepest longings? Absolutely he does. He satisfies every, every want and need of, of love, and grace, mercy, forgiveness. 
And he gives us all of these things. When we go through life, there's a term now. I I love it. I wish it had been a term a long time ago. Why didn't we think of the word hangry? I mean, that's a good word. You ever heard that word hangry? So hungry, you're angry, right? You're in a bad mood because you're so hungry. Some of us walk through life spiritually hangry, don't we? We walk through life and we want something so bad that we can't think of anything else and we treat other people like dirt because we're hungry for whatever it is. But when Jesus satisfies that longing, then then through the Spirit and through Jesus, then we can treat people with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The cross puts everything into perspective. Magnifying things minimizes God. And thereby, everything is distorted. It's all out of perspective. It's like looking in one of those weird mirrors, you know, that your head looks too big and your body looks too small. You know, even on your car, you know, the mirror on the side, it says objects in mirror are closer than they appear. That's what idolatry does. It, It distorts our perspective on everything. But the cross, Jesus brings everything into perspective. And he brings us to our knees at his feet, and then everything else makes more sense. And then even though we die, yet shall we live. He saves us from our deepest fears, and he satisfies our deepest longings. See, that's why this is so important, isn't it? Coming together with our church family to remind us who we are and what we're all about, what's really important in life. It's not just when I was a kid, I mean, I thought, well, do I have to come to Wednesday night Bible class? I mean, you know, am I going to go to hell if I don't go to Wednesday night Bible class? It's not like that. It's not like check off the list so I can make sure I make it to heaven. I can't live a single day without magnifying some silly thing in my world, some good thing that I blow out of proportion and make it into an ultimate thing. I can't do that without constantly being reminded of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for me and what he's made possible for me in that he saved me from my deepest fears and satisfied my deepest longings. And we come together as a church family and we build up and encourage and edify each other so that we can go out there and share this truth with other people and we can love our neighbor as ourselves We can help them to see, listen, I know it's so hard not to deify a relationship or deify politics or deify a career or deify health or deify whatever. I know it's so hard not to make that an ultimate thing, but I want to share with you the way the cross puts everything into perspective. We can go out there and be salt and light in the world when we come in here and have our perspective shape the right way and put the cross in front of our eyes so that we see things for what they really are. You know, I often joke that my thumb is as big as the moon. Is your thumb as big as the moon? You know, at nighttime, the moon is out. Even if it's real big, you can put your thumb in front of the, in front of the moon, right? But your thumb isn't really as big as the moon. It's not anywhere near. It's just that your thumb is right in front of your face. <laughs> and that's what we got to do with the cross, we get, we got to keep the cross right in front of our face because other things, they get right up in our face. And we think, this, this is huge. This is so important. This is worth yelling at somebody over. It, it's not. Whatever that thing is, that gets right up there in our face. And we think, this is so big. Just kind of pull it down for a second. Put things in perspective. That's what the cross does for us. 
And I don't know where you are, and I don't know what's going on in your life, but I know that things get out of perspective for me. And the best thing that we can do for each other is pray for each other and encourage each other. And, and I know you all know each other better than I do. And you know that the other people in this room love you. And if you need to ask for their prayers and encourage each other, or maybe there's somebody here that's not a Christian yet and you need to be baptized into Christ, that puts the whole world into perspective. When you die to self and say, from now on, I live for him. If we can help you with anything tonight, won't you come forward as we stand and sing?